0: Welcome to Advent. This is the first Sunday of Advent, as you just heard, and we begin with that lighting of the hope candle. That's where Advent begins. A preacher and uh, writer named Fleming Rutledge said, Advent begins in the dark. And it's this reminder that Advent is this time of waiting, and we join with all of creation in this history of Of longing for the arrival of the Savior. That we were in desperate need of a Savior. That our story began in the dark. But the hope of Jesus is that the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And it begins with a small of a flicker in the darkness as a candle called hope. And that's where we're starting today. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 1. Again, uh, we are beginning our journey through the gospel of Luke. And in this time of Advent, we're going to be starting that journey. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 25 uh, and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, But again, just to orient us in this season of Advent, if that kind of language is new to you, uh, then to give you a, a sense of orientation, Uh, The Christian church throughout uh, centuries has oriented its year around the story of Jesus. And so Advent is actually the beginning of the Christian calendar. And it's basically the Christian New Year. So we're at this time where the rest of our culture is talking about the end of the year And in true fashion of the way of Jesus, while the culture is talking about the end of something, we're talking about the beginning of something, uh, embodying that good news of who Jesus is and that upside-down, backwards, great reversal reality of the gospel of Jesus. And so here at the beginning, it starts with this sense of, of walking back through that journey again. Of remembering what it was like for the people of God. To wait for the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah. So we think back through all of their history. Uh, through the promises that came to them through the prophets. And to this moment of shocking fulfillment of this promise. Being fulfilled in a way that they never expected. I love that hymn that we just sang that Stephen just led us in, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus uh, written by Charles Wesley. This is one of my favorite hymns of this season and it captures that sense of both Christmas and the joy of the arrival but also that sense of longing that Advent uh, embodies for us. I love that Come Thou Long Expected Jesus and yet even though he was expected throughout history, the way in which he arrives is still shocking and surprising. We're going to be digging into the beginning of that story today. So Luke chapter 1 and uh, starting with verse 5. Here's what it says. In the time of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. I'm going to stop right there for a moment and give us a little bit of context on that. And uh, so the descendants of Aaron, Aaron is the brother of Moses. And so we know that that story of Moses uh, and the exodus of God breaking his people free from slavery in Egypt, leading them out of that slavery leading them through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea for them and leading them through the desert towards the promised land. This is the defining story of the Jewish people. And Moses is this key figure. And God uses Moses to establish the rituals of worship and the heritage of worship uh, that the Jewish people were continuing to practice and keep alive. At this point in the story. But Moses' brother Aaron is the one who becomes the priest over that. And all descendants of Aaron, all of the male descendants of Aaron, became qualified for that to be priests of the Lord. And so they divided that family up into 24 different divisions. And at this point in history, scholars think that there were probably. Uh, maybe around like 25,000 people, somewhere in that range, uh, who were eligible to be priests. Okay, So this is a a massive group of people uh, who take turns in serving as priests uh, when it comes their time to come to the temple. That gives you a little bit of understanding into where this story is headed next here. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to have children and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And for when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Again, with that many people uh, serving as priests, this was likely a once in-a lifetime opportunity for Zechariah to be chosen to do uh, this role, to step into that role of going into the temple and burning incense. Uh, at the altar of the Lord. This was an incredible honor, likely a a once-in-a-lifetime situation. But it's about to become even more incredible. Verse 11, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth many of the people of israel will he bring back to the lord their god and he will go on before the lord in the spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the lord Zechariah asked the angel how can i be sure of this I am an old man and my wife is well alone in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Jesus, thank you for these words. This powerful story. Of the way that you moved for us. The way that you moved on behalf of your people Israel. The way that you moved on behalf of the world. And you did it. Through this elderly couple. Who had this one persisting prayer. On behalf of Zechariah and Elizabeth today. Thank you for answering their prayer. Thank you for hearing them. And thank you for choosing this way to answer that prayer and to fulfill that promise. Not just for them, but for the whole world. Help us to understand it today. Help us to grasp it. Help us to see you moving now too. See your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love this story. It's so powerful on many fronts. We're going to just kind of move through it piece by piece here together. Uh, I want to start with those first few words. Luke, um, the the author that Christian tradition connects to this book, we talked a little bit about that last week in the introduction. Uh, We don't know a lot about Luke other than uh, he's listed as a companion of Paul. Uh, That's one of the reasons that he gets connected to Luke and Acts. Remember we said that Acts is written by the same author. We know that because they begin with the same kind of introduction. uh, And they're connected in that way. And it's in the book of Acts in which you see this shift take place where Luke was telling the story uh, as it was happening to other people. And then there's this shift in it where he moves from talking about what happened to them to what happened to us. And he begins in this first person telling of the story. And so we know that this was a companion of Paul who was a part of this journey. And so it gets connected to Luke in that way. Uh, it's also, it's, he's also said to have been a physician. And some people uh, believe and through different uh, times of Christian tradition have believed that he was a Gentile. Uh, which would make him the only non-Jewish author of one of the books of the New Testament. And so Luke is giving us this very interesting perspective as he's telling this story, but there's another piece that's important for us to understand about Luke, and that's that he's known as a historian. And so the way that he's framing this, he frames his story differently than the other Gospels, and you can see that he begins by telling this story within its frame of history. And so he says, in the time of Herod, when Herod was king of Judea. Herod was an incredibly important person at that time. He's a king over that region, but really he's under the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod was a cruel leader in many, many ways. Um, a very broken and cruel leader leader, who was obsessed with his own power, uh, that we have to be very real about that. And we also have to be very real uh, that in many ways his ambitions uh, were brought to fruition. Uh, His building, he, he was the one who helped oversee the building of the temple at that time and other massive building projects that he undertook uh, that we still talk about today. He absolutely made his mark on history. He was obsessed with finding his place in history. So he partnered up with the Roman Empire to keep that power secured, uh, even at the expense of the people that he was supposed to be leading and overseeing. In his obsession to make his mark on history, Uh, He even took one of his palaces uh, and turned it into a monument to himself where he was planning to be buried. So he starts, before his own death, he starts to build his own tomb to make sure that a monument is left to him that he thinks is worthy of who he is. He wanted the mountain on which he was buried to be able to be seen from Jerusalem, which is about eight miles away from where he was buried but the hill that he picked wasn't tall enough. So he made people make the mountain taller. (laughs) How would you like that job? All right, so he made, put them into this construction project where they're building this mountain taller, carrying these rocks up this mountain, earth up this mountain to make it reach higher so that his tomb would be able to be seen from miles and miles away. He was obsessed with his own place in history, his own legacy, And his own power. I saw that tomb when I went to Israel a few years back. And as I stood there, I was amazed at, frankly, his brilliance in many ways. Uh, His ability to leverage power in many ways. It was very impressive. It was very impressive what he left behind. And yet I couldn't help but stand there. And look around at all of the people that I came there with. And look around at all of the other tourist groups who were there. And realize that not a single one of them made that trip to see Herod. People were there from all over the world and not a single person came to Israel because they wanted to see anything that had anything to do with Herod. They were there because of one other name. They were there because of Jesus. And so Luke, being the historian, he frames this story right from the start with in the time of Herod. And before we get to the end of the paragraph, Herod's name is obsolete. As Luke begins to tell this story, we realize this is not a story about the time of Herod. This is a story about the turning point of all of history, which is the moment of Jesus. That God is on his way as this story opens up. Harry gets a mention and he becomes a footnote in history and to this story. This is the time of Jesus. And in fact, the story that Luke is telling, we mark time in history based off of this moment. Everything that happened before that moment and everything that happened after that moment. This is the turning point of history. It's not the time of Herod. It's the time of Jesus. And it still is that today. I want to challenge you on where you are in your story. What time is it in your story? How are you marking the time in your story right now? This is the time of my unemployment. This is the time of my depression. This is the time of my addiction. This is the time where my story was coming apart and falling apart right before my eyes. What's the time frame that you're in right now? What is it that seems like the overarching, defining reality of the moment that you are in? Luke gives us hope in that. Not to ignore the reality of all of those things. They're very real. But the hope. The deeper hope. The one flicker candle in the darkness hope. That says Jesus is moving. And he has the power to turn that story around. Our stories are defined by him, It's not the time of Herod anymore, and it's not the time of anything else. This is the time of Jesus, and he defines the moment. As we keep going, um, one of the things that I find extremely interesting here, you know I'm kind of obsessed with, with the Old Testament stories and how they all come into play uh, in the story of Jesus, and we see that happening right here in this moment. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, it's a very personal story for them, and yet it's this microcosm of the broader story of all of Israel, but really all of creation. And their story is marked by waiting, and hoping, and longing. In fact, they've been waiting so long, we probably shouldn't even put the word hope in there anymore. They've been waiting and longing and their prayer has not been answered. This one thing at the core of who they were that they wanted so badly and they had come to terms with that harsh reality that their eyes were never going to see the fulfillment of that hope. They had most likely given up hope. They had experienced what it felt like to be exiled in that desert of waiting what it felt like to live in the stifling silence of God in the depths of the thing that you're desiring the most. I want to encourage you with this today and challenge you with this today. He does hear you. He does hear you. I have no way Of speaking into how God is answering the prayers that you're praying. I don't know that. But he does hear you. And the the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth gives us that sense of hope. That just like Israel had been waiting and longing and living in that desert experience. So much of their history was marked by that exile and desert. And yet we see in the broader story that God has been moving and he is moving in your life as well in the midst of their disappointment we find Zechariah in this place of worship and that's odd for us that's an odd response we get that that's his role and that's his job and he had to go and do that all right we understand that part but there's something in here to challenge us as well the reality that he is in the midst of this he is worshiping god and it's in that moment of worship that god shows up in this visible way in his life i actually i'm going to rephrase that can i have the moment to rephrase that i hate the phrase god shows up i hate that i shouldn't say hate but i don't tell my kids i said that all right god is always present He fills all, every corner of creation. So it's not that God shows up. It's that our eyes are open to see him. We're the ones that show up. We open our eyes and we see what he's up to. And in this moment of disappointment, Zechariah's eyes get opened up to see what God is up to, not just for him and for Elizabeth, but for all of Israel and for all of creation. That God is on the move and he is about to break in in a new way. As the arrival of the Messiah draws near. I love that we see Zechariah in worship and I think that's a challenge to us. So many times when it feels like God goes silent, our natural reaction, and this is okay. But our natural reaction is to want to distance ourselves. We want to go silent on Him too. If He's gone silent on us, then we're not going to waste our breath in talking to Him. And we naturally want to distance ourselves, but we see Zechariah doing something different. He's leaning into Him instead. Worship is not some escape from reality. It's not. It's not a momentary escape from reality. Instead worship is the opposite. Worship is this bold recognition of the most real reality. Worship says, Yahweh is God, I am His. And that's what we see happening in this moment. And it's there that this angel appears to him with this proclamation. Zechariah, do not be afraid. Why? Because your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. And at that moment, Advent begins. That's it. That's the beginning hope of Advent. That's what this candle means. Do not be afraid. God has heard your prayers and he is moving as we speak. What a promise. That's the hope of Advent, that God has heard and that God is moving. That we were in desperate need of a Savior We can never make our way to him. So he made his way to us. He's heard our prayer. And we marvel at his kindness towards us. In the sending of his own son. Jesus Christ. And in the ways that he does that. He moves to answer the deepest longing of creation. On this cosmic scale. And yet he does it in the very real needs. Of this elderly couple. Who thought they were completely forgotten. I love that about him. That's how he so often moves. He answers this large-scale prayer in the midst of the lives of seemingly small people. It's absolutely beautiful. One of the things I find most hopeful about this passage is the reality of Zechariah's name. Zechariah's name means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And that's such a promise to him personally. I remember your prayer. I've heard it over and over. I remember your longing. And I'm moving in that. Yahweh remembers. So every time he ever heard somebody say his name. Anytime he ever introduced himself to someone else and said his own name. These seeds of hope were planted in him of this reality. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And in this moment, we see that fulfillment of that. As Gabriel shows up and says, I have come from the throne room of God himself to say do not be afraid. Yahweh remembers. He has not forgotten you. Your prayer has been Heard, and he's going to bless all of Israel and all of creation through you. It's through that moment that Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to end up becoming the parents of John the Baptist, whom we know becomes this trailblazer for Jesus the Messiah. In fact, the uh, passage that we read this morning at the lighting of the Advent candle, that prophecy from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament gets fulfilled through the person. Of John the Baptist a voice in the wilderness crying out prepare the way of the Lord that's who John ends up becoming so right here at this beginning of the Advent story we get the introduction and this miraculous birth of John the Baptist who's going to pave the way for the Messiah's coming again It echoes so much of Israel's history. In this story, we see the echoes of Abraham and Sarah. This elderly couple who longed to have children, but were unable to have children. God makes a promise that they will. And through that promised child, God ends up blessing not just them, but the entire world. And so we see that here at the beginning of Luke's gospel as well. Abraham and Sarah are the beginning of the story of the people of Israel. They trace their history back to that moment and now at this turning point moment he moves for another elderly couple. Anyone reading this story in that time and in that culture immersed in that would have picked it up immediately and would have recognized that and said he's doing it again. He's moving again. This is our history and he's doing that. They also, as we've already said, would have heard the echoes of Moses and Aaron. This other turning point, key moment in their history. And this is happening in the temple that's based off of the design that God gives to Moses for building the tabernacle while he's serving as a priest in this role of Aaron. And they would have remembered that story from the Exodus. And they would have said, he's doing it again. He's moving for us again. In this kind of way. They would have thought about Isaiah. And the exile. And said a voice is going to cry out. From the wilderness and the desert. Is going to prepare the way. For the arrival of the Lord. We feel like we're in a desert now. We're in that desert. And we're in that exile again. Under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire. But he's moving again. And he's doing it in this same way. And those echoes. Would have reminded them. And then there's something really important that happens here. Another echo. It's an echo of Elijah and Malachi. You heard here in Gabriel's promise where he references Elijah. This is in verses 16 and 17 in this passage. Here's what it says. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's an echo from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Before the opening of the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus, the Old Testament ends... With Malachi chapter 4. And listen to these last words. Of the Old Testament. Where the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Felt like there had been this time of silence. Where God was not speaking through his prophets. That there had been this time of silence. So look at the last words. Of the last prophet. Of the Old Testament. Says this. See I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's a direct echo of the last words that we have in our canon here. Of the Old Testament. And so here as the New Testament opens up with this story of Jesus again. We get that connection to John the Baptist. We're told that John the Baptist is going to come in that spirit of Elijah, the last of that kind of prophet, preparing the way, the fulfillment. And so because of those last words of Malachi, uh, the, the Jewish people believed that Elijah would return before the Messiah would come. And so what Gabriel is telling Zechariah in this passage is, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that hope. Now, not a reincarnation of Elijah. That's not what we're saying. But that same kind of anointing by the Holy Spirit, that same kind of mission, that same kind of blessing of the Spirit resting on him and empowering him to go and prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And in this one short story, 20 verses long, that we read here today, we get so much of Israel's history playing out right in front of us, telling us Yahweh remembers and he's moving again. And all of his promises are about to come into fulfillment as this child, John the Baptist, is going to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah. Get ready. He's on the move. He's on the way. I want to challenge us with these questions as we close out today. What prayer remains unanswered in your life? As you're thinking about the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, maybe you relate. Maybe there's a deep longing and there's a deep prayer that remains unanswered. What is that? What longing is yet to be fulfilled in your life? What need, what fear, what obstacle threatens you? What might the redemption of your pain look like? Becoming the beginning of someone else's healing. How might the redemption of your pain become the beginning of someone else's healing? That's what he does right here in this moment with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the last question I want to leave you with is this we get this moment where Zechariah does not believe what he's being told and what happens to him he's struck silent and he's not able to speak but time out I thought we said God is okay with our questions I thought we said we're allowed to bring our questions to God we are Absolutely we are. God does not reject your doubts. God does not reject your questions. He is large enough to handle those. But what we have in this moment is that God has answered all of Zechariah's questions. An angel of the Lord himself appears in front of Zechariah. The answer to all of his questions is standing right in front of him. And yet he still can't accept that apparently there is no answer he's willing to accept and I think that needs to be a challenge for us as well I think at times we need to be willing to question our questions what answer will be good enough for us Because he is the truth. He's not afraid of your questions. Not at all. But there does come a point when he looks at you and he says, come follow me. Come trust me. Come take that next step and move with me. At times I think we need to question our questions. And we need to keep that in balance as well. Yahweh remembers. There's so much hope in that. He knows every single turn of your story, and he's moving to make sense of the plot of it, even if you can't see it right now. Yahweh remembers. He sees the whole story, and we see the proof of that here how the whole story of Israel gets played out right in front of our eyes, 20 verses, with one elderly couple. He remembers. And he's moving to bring every one of his promises into fulfillment in your life.